Welcome to Mystery and Intrigue, the new name for both Spies of London and Citizen Detective. The new name reflects crime, that's mystery, and espionage, that's intrigue, and emphasises that we're all about the riddles and unexplained wrinkles in some of the world's most addictive mysteries. Coming up in this first show of Season 3, we have a roundup of some of the cases we featured during the Citizen Detective years, or indeed weeks. We have a couple of factoids for you. We have Christina Scarbeck, Christine Granville, as covered by Claire Molly, who wrote the brilliant book, The Spy Who Loved. And also a closer look at the Claudia Lawrence missing persons case. So before I fully leave behind me the citizen detective crime-fighting days, I wanted to say that I learned a lot from the show. I found that the social media true crime community was very active and engaged, and it was great fun talking to everyone online. Some of them are actively trying to investigate cold cases, although they are mainly the American shows. But most of them were simply trying to get some cold cases into the public conscience, where they had perhaps been forgotten for 10, 20, 30 or more years, maybe even 100 years. Both of these aims are brilliant and obviously valuable, but I quickly realised that the British police are not that interested in getting outside help in the same way that I thought I could be of use. Yes, of course, they want witnesses, they want physical evidence, they want weapons to be handed back, they want fingerprints and all that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of thing that made Crime Watch on the BBC so successful for decades. It was a really a prime time show for maybe 20 or more years. What the police here really don't want is members of the public somehow volunteering or sitting alongside them, looking at evidence statements, combing through paperwork, helping to type up maybe handwritten notes or notes that are just on typewritten paper, or even using modern skills like data mining and so on. They want to do that in-house. They don't want outside help. And what I think I had in mind was something more like Bellingcat, but focused on British cold cases, particularly murders. At one stage, I even wrote to my local police force about the unsolved murder of Dr Helen Davidson, which happened less than 10 miles from where I live now. There was zero interest in this. I got a standard email response saying nothing much and then complete silence. Even Monica Weller, who has written the authoritative work on the Helen Davidson murder, struggled to get the Thames Valley PCC to take the case seriously, and there are strong rumours that the evidence was accidentally destroyed Make of that what you will. I'm not someone who believes in conspiracy theories, and I think that they were genuinely destroyed by accident. However, I was reading an interview with Claudia Lawrence's mother quite recently. The interview was from the summer of 2020, where she claims that the senior investigating officer who retired from the case last August caused a lack of interest in the case going forwards. And curiously enough... It was the death of the main police officer in the Helen Davidson case that also seemed to affect the investigation. He died after the Monica Weller book, so she got a lot of help from him. And I just wonder, it made me think whether, yes, okay, the police rely on tip-offs from the public. I think very few murder cases could be prosecuted without witnesses. You know, there's very few crimes on this severity where it's an absolute slam dunk and you don't need any witnesses. So the police do rely on tip-offs, but I think less obvious cases, the ones that require a bit more work and a bit more time, there does seem to be 
a reliance on perhaps one or maybe two police officers personally taking an interest in the case over decades. You see this with Topping with the Moores murders from the 60s. You see this in other cases where one officer has been unable to let the case drop and has kept on plugging away. Sometimes they get a successful outcome, but many times they don't, and they retire, still worried about the case, and they continue, after retirement, trying to plug away, trying to get a resolution. And it's quite often when they retire, or perhaps later on when they die, that you know the chance of a conviction just feels like it's, it's gone below zero. And that's certainly what Claudia Lawrence's mother was saying in the article that I saw. And it need hardly be said that if anyone in Thames Valley Police or North Yorkshire Police strongly disagree with these sentiments, they are welcome to send a statement for me to read out, or they can appear in person. But I doubt that anybody will seriously contest these opinions. It feels to me logical. It feels to me that an under-resourced agency of any kind will have to prioritise. Everybody has to prioritise in their work. And as friends and relatives of the victims die, there's nobody pushing the case anymore. There's no advocate for the victim. Their families disappear. They give up hope. The police officers retire. And eventually the chance of a lead or a new witness coming forward basically disappears. So we will continue to present these cold cases in the new show. But we will also focus on the victims more than the perpetrators and on general awareness of the crimes. We will not actively be trying to investigate crimes ourselves. Any information we receive here will be passed on to the police. So apologies for a slightly downbeat start to the new season, but I thought it was important to explain why I'd left those kind of ideas behind. Later on in this show, there will be another look at Claudia Lawrence, which will help to show why I definitively left these thoughts behind. But before we get on to that, let's look at some entertainment, TV and books. And the wonderful Sarah Pinborough's wonderful book, Behind Her Eyes, is now a wonderful show on Netflix. Why so many wonderfuls, you didn't ask? Well, I had the good fortune to meet Sarah in a dodgy basement in King's Cross quite a few years ago. And were I to say it was a sex den illuminated by red neon, you might raise an eyebrow, but it's actually kind of true. And I can no longer prove that it was true because the venue that was hosting the event has closed. But I will put a link in the show notes to Drink Shop Do on the Caledonian Road, which does reference the sign that I'm talking about. Anyway, you might not be interested in this, but Behind Her Eyes is interesting, it's brilliant, and it's either out right now or very soon. If you're listening live to this show, it is out now. And if you're listening on Dave, it was out about 10 years ago and you've missed it. I will be covering my rekindled love of hard case crime novels in a future episode, but just time to mention here that they have a new Stephen King, which is available right now for pre-order for delivery in early March. They are widely available around the Anglophone world, and they are a kind of Anglo-American collab anyway, and that's something I always try and do, both on this show and in my publishing projects as well. If you missed it last year, please do try to catch the HBO series, which of course is on Sky in the UK, remake of Perry Mason. It covers the time in his career before he became a courtroom lawyer when he was a private detective, and it's just brilliant. I can remember the Raymond Burr shows, and they were fabulous, but the new shows are worth watching, really well made, and they have been renewed for a new series. So just before we get all heavy again, I have a factoid, and this one says, on the slip of paper that Paul's just handed me, 
that the getaway car for the Great Train Robbery was driven by Formula One Supremo Bernie Ecclestone. Is this a... No, it's, it's not true. He's got me again, but it is a common myth. In fact, the car was driven by a racing driver whom Bernie Eccleston managed or something like that. There was an Eccleston connection. But the myth is very funny, and it's one that I enjoy. Okay, so back to serious matters. Claudia Lawrence, the missing person case from York in North Yorkshire. And it was one of the most popular episodes of Citizen Detective. And it's, again, on this feed as well, if you want to find it in your podcast app. You'll see it in the last few weeks. I've republished it. And I covered this case really reluctantly because I always look at really old cold cases because I think that their distance gives you uh, a certain advantage there. You don't have to be quite so delicate and tread around things that might upset friends and family uh, because, of course, Claudia Lawrence is still officially a missing person. And I do believe that Claudia was murdered, as do the police. There is still the possibility that, in fact, she wasn't. And I didn't want to cover it because I felt like a lot of people were looking at it. It's still quite recent. It just didn't feel right. But I did take an interest in this case when it very first hit the news, partly because I used to live, I grew up near York. I was roughly the same age as Claudia when she went missing. And it even from that very first news bulletin, it just felt like this was a case that was going to last. And it was there was something about it which felt a little bit creepy and interesting, you know, a lot of you guys who listen to this show will understand that, that the creepier something is, the more you're drawn towards it. But anyway, I wasn't going to touch it on the podcast. I did touch it in the end. And the reason was that when I was researching the case, I quickly realised that the police were asking for witnesses and so on from the Thursday, which is the day they believe Claudia disappeared, that she'd set off to work on foot and been abducted on that walk to work and then subsequently murdered that day. This was on Thursday. Certainly all of the evidence that they'd published about the case left open the possibility that Claudia had vanished on the Wednesday night, the previous night. And I wondered why they were not pursuing this, because obviously the police have more information than they can ever release because of lots of complicated reasons. And they might have had a reason for pushing the Thursday theory, but it seemed to me just no more than a theory. It seemed very plausible that Claudia had actually left home on the Wednesday night, perhaps gone out for a drink or a meal, and never come back home afterwards. So I wrote this article on the blog, which used all of the published information from the official police website. What I was trying to do was use the published evidence to show exactly in a reconstruction that I fabricated how Claudia could have disappeared on the Wednesday night. And this would be useful because many of most of the appeals, the Crime Watch appeals, were all about Thursday morning. So if it was Wednesday night, suddenly more witnesses might have come forward. And I made the hypothesis that perhaps Claudia had gone for a drink with a friend on the Wednesday night and somehow come to harm that evening. But anyway, this blog was picked up by a message board and they bounced around debating it for a few hours or days. But they seemed to be quite quick to pick holes in my theory, even though it was clearly labelled as a theory at the top and bottom. It was never meant to be you know, anything factual. It was it was taking the facts that the police had published and weaving a narrative that fit those facts to demonstrate that Claudia could very easily have disappeared on Wednesday night. And that's all it was. I read some of this out on the podcast. Um, but it was the way that that kind of herd mentality piled in on the article 
which just made me think again about the whole idea behind the podcast. And these were lessons I've learned many times, but it's always good to learn them again. And it does seem to me that a lot of people who are interested in these cases are the same people who believe in conspiracies. They just have too much time and they are just a drain on people's time and energy and their own as well. And it suddenly made me realise there's kind of a light came on. I understand now why the police are so reluctant to engage with do-gooders because you can very quickly get dragged into side avenues, misinformation, hypotheses which once reported to the police you sort of feel like you have to investigate even though you suspect that they're just duff leads. But I also saw that their appeal for witnesses on the Thursday were just too successful. There's pretty much no... There are one or two, but the vast, vast majority of theories out on the internet about this case all revolve around Thursday morning. And I think it should be 50-50, more or less. I think that, you know, it, we know it was either Wednesday night or Thursday because she is captured on CCTV walking towards home on the Wednesday afternoon. So it's just logical that she made it home. And then she either disappeared on the Wednesday or the day after. It, it just seems like it's a 50-50. And the police were sort of saying it was 95% likely that it was Thursday. That's how it felt to me. And to all the other people who have picked this up, I think, as well. So there we go. That's my take on the Claudia thing. Um, but I did do a bit of rustling around, and it didn't take long. I had a look at Google Maps, which showed immediately that this white van that was seen from a bus camera on the Wednesday night was not opposite Claudia's house. Um, not, I mean, when I say the word opposite, I mean across the road. I don't mean down the end of the road. So yes, it was on the other side of the street to the house, but it was at the end of the street with Claudia living roughly halfway along. So it was ridiculous to suggest that the white van was somehow opposite the house. It's ridiculous to suggest that that white van was interesting because it was parked in the same road. Again, unless the police have extra information that they have not released. And then another question, people were asking, okay, why was Claudia not shown on the CCTV in her own street? Because other people were, and, and they were used in Crime Watch. And of course, the answer is that the camera on her street covers the direction to the left of the house. So if you come out of the house and turn left, you will walk past the camera. But the regular pub that Claudia used and her work were in the opposite direction. So unless she was going out of her routine, she would never have walked past that camera at any time. And you can check these things out within a few minutes, but really little to nobody on, on the web message boards is interested in this. And I found that, you know, doing the most basic checks, the simplest, most basic checks, put you ahead of maybe 95% of all the other people researching these cases. And if you just simply relentlessly focus on these basic things every day, year in, year out, eventually you might, if you're you know, lucky, it's a lot of work, but you can get lucky if you work hard and crack a case open. But I was finding just too many people interested in lazy gossip. And lazy gossip is not a way to solve any kind of problem in life, much less a very high profile cold case. So if you put that together with the fact that the police are just not interested in do-gooders, and I can now understand why, um, I just shut the whole thing down. I am interested in this case. I would love to listen to anybody who wants to talk about it or who wants to come on and, you know, explain their theories about it. I think there is a lot to learn still from this case. There's a lot still to happen. But it's quite clear that the police believe she was murdered and they have a pretty strong notion of who did it. They just don't have quite enough evidence. So that's my Claudia piece. There's a full episode on Claudia. I just wanted to recount some of the experiences I'd had since recording that piece. And that's before we move on to the final item today, which is Claire Molly's excellent book, 
The Spy Who Loved. And the reason for mentioning this now, it's not a new book. It is a brilliant book. But just before Christmas, I went to a talk that Claire gave. And she's also the author of The Women Who Flew for Hitler, which is just as good as it sounds, as well as The Spy Who Loved, which is about the life of the Polish countess, Christina Skarbek. When Christina eventually arrived in London, she became known as Christine Granville. And she was married to a diplomat, but she felt the urge or the requirement on her to somehow contribute to the war effort. So she could have, well, she could in theory have gone to the factories or the farms, but I think married to a diplomat, that would have been hard. So she was exiled, effectively, and to contribute to the war in an active way, there was only one option. Uh, Women, certainly, and and, uh, European women, were not allowed to join the British Army or any of the armed forces. So she went to SOE, the Special Operations Executive. And one way or another, she found out that um, women were being hired for these activities, even behind enemy lines, frontline activities. And she was parachuted into France, as were so many of the famous women of SOE, where, one way or another, she managed to save the life of a man called Zan Fielding, amongst many other things that she did. But Zan attracted my attention because he was a close friend of Patrick Lee Fermer, who has appeared in many of my Spies episodes. Patrick Lee Fermer and Billy Moss had abducted a German general on Crete for or under the auspices of SOE back in the war. In some accounts, these are not quite fair as it turns out, but there are many accounts which kind of portray this as a kind of a youthful jape and as something a little bit silly, but it was very dangerous. It was carefully thought through and carefully planned. And it does sound ridiculous if you tell it in a certain way, but if you read their accounts, particularly Billy Moss's Ill Met by Moonlight, the book, which was later made into a film, if you read the book, they did take it very seriously. And while they were up to all these antics on Crete, back in France, Zan Fielding was arrested as a spy. And Christine somehow heard about this. And she knew that he was highly regarded and a key figure in secret circles during the war. And so she whisked him away. Well, I've written here from the sights of the marksman's rifle with hours to spare, which sounds dramatic. And it was dramatic, but it wasn't quite that dramatic. Helped along by a two million franc bribe. Uh, Okay, a franc was not worth as much as a pound, but two million francs back in the 40s would have been a lot of money. The German general, Zanfielding, nearly being shot. This really gives the lie to the image of the landed gentleman, you know, the P.G. Woodhouse kind of character who was uh, very comfortable, perhaps a sub-aristocrat, sitting around waiting for the war to end at home in their country houses. But they did put themselves in danger for Britain. And strangely enough, my spellcheckers called them artistocrats, which is interesting because they were all artistic, creative, adventurous, and perhaps a little bit silly as well. Um, But we still share these stories today. So that was what drew me into this story from Claire Molly, was the the Zanfielding, Patrick Lee, Firma kind of angle to it. But then you find that Christine herself is in some ways even more impressive. She made a strong impression on everybody she met, She turned the heads of all the men. She went herself behind enemy lines. She was parachuted in and she was a brilliant skier as well. She found herself just as comfortable skiing across the Alps with bullets flying after her as she did in the low-lying French countryside and the villages around northern France. And somehow uh, she survived the war. All the people that I've mentioned did survive the war. Her memory was preserved for many years by a group of well-meaning men who considered themselves to be friends. They were former boyfriends of hers. But then they seemed to somehow block her story getting told. 
until Claire Molly came along and really got to grips with this story in a, in a detailed way for the first time. And Claire was also instrumental in getting an English Heritage blue plaque in London for Christine, such that her memory is forever preserved. And although it's not as high profile as the Violette Charbot SOE Memorial statue, which is the official SOE Memorial, at least there's a plaque and at least there's a record in public of what Christine achieved. And I think it's no coincidence that a lot of recent SOE histories feature women as the main characters because their contributions were deliberately withheld at the time for fear of public outcry, and many of the women were either too heroic to talk, or too shy, or they were shot as spies, and, and the Germans really took no prisoners in the literal sense. They were shot and hanged during and shortly after the war. And if you put this book together with Sarah Helm's study of Vera Atkins, who recruited and led and managed a lot of the female agents in SOE, you really get a much better understanding of the risks and of the successes of these women during the war. And it, these stories have only just come out in the last sort of 10 or 20 years. And this part of SOE history was my absolute favourite part of my Mayfair spy walk, being able to talk about Vera Atkins and Christine um, outside the Fleming's Hotel, which is where the basement cocktail bar called Manetta's is. And Manetta's is where Vera preferred to meet agents for the first time, to tell them about SOE, to highlight the risks, and to try and recruit them, of course, as well. And these missions nearly always began with a terrifying nighttime parachute into occupied France. And that would have put off probably 99% of anyone. And yet, there's something about this small group of women who were not put off by that. They did all the training, they had the parachutes, and they went fully loaded into France to fight the war. And that so many of them chose to do that is frankly unbelievable from this distance. But, um, you know, I don't want to spoil the ending of Claire's book, but it is strongly recommended, as are all the other books that I've mentioned today, and it's very much worth your time. So there we are at the end of the very first episode of season three, our first under the mystery and intrigue name. We are accepting pre-orders today at crimespies.com. That's www.crimespies.com, all one word, where you can buy at a special price uh, our new crime novel, which we're working on behind the scenes this winter. And it includes a signed paperback and ebook double package. Plus, you will also get your own name, your very own name, typed into the book on a special subscriber page. If it's any good, we might read out a chapter or half a chapter on the podcast just so you can get a flavour of the style but it's very much inspired by Perry Mason and other gumshoe detectives the Raymond Chandlers of the world so there we are welcome to season three and I hope you will join us next time you've been listening to Mystery and Intrigue and we are available wherever you get your podcasts